This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by the Body Trust Provider Certification Training Program. I know many of you listening are helping professionals who want to offer an alternative to the traditional weight-focused paradigm, so consider applying to become a certified Body Trust Provider. This training program, led by Hillary Canavy and Dana Sturdivant of Be Nourished, both of whom have been guests on the podcast in the past, is a trauma-informed, scientifically grounded model of care that's informed by shame resilience theory, social justice movements, and self-compassion while working from the principles of intuitive eating and health at every size. Learn more and apply for the program at benourished.org. That's B-E-N-O-U-R-I-S-H-E-D.org. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. there. Welcome to episode 184 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and you just heard our new theme song. Woohoo! It was written especially for us by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs, a great composer who also did theme songs for several of my podcaster friends, including Katie Dalebout of Let It Out and April Quio and Sophie Carter-Khan of She's All Fat. I still love our old theme song, but I picked it way back in early 2013 when I was just starting to make this show and basically just needed a royalty-free song that talked about food. And so it didn't really reflect what we're about now, which is intuitive eating and health at every size and smashing diet culture. So I'm really excited to have this new theme song that reflects very much what we're about now as we approach the sixth anniversary of when I started making this show, which is so exciting. And speaking of smashing diet culture and big milestones, today I'm talking with Virgie Tovar, the amazing fat activist and author and friend of the pod for her third appearance on the show. We talked about her newest book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat, the intersections between fat phobia, sexism, and diet culture, how dieting is a form of oppression and assimilation, the influence of American history on diet culture, body liberation as a collective movement, and so much more. It's a really, really great one. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Lily, who writes, Hi, Christy. I love your podcast, and I feel in many ways comfortable and very happy about my progress with intuitive eating and body acceptance so far. I grew up in the binge-restrict cycle from as young as I can remember, which finally turned into full-blown bulimia in college. Through various kinds of therapy and my own reading and research, I'm in such a better place than I once was, and I'm genuinely so much happier. What I still struggle with, however, is body acceptance as a single woman in my 20s trying to navigate the world of dating. Intellectually, I completely believe in diet culture being created and fueled by our patriarchal society, and I'm so infuriated by how it stifles women and femmes in so many countless ways. In reality, however, I have difficulty applying these convictions in my everyday life as I'm currently trying to date and find companionship. Every time I'm ignored on a dating app, for example, I'm so bummed and become hateful in my body and its appearance in photos. While I fully understand the inherent shallowness and objectification of these apps, I still can't help but yearn for my body to be more desirable on this platform. When I'm in a bar with my friends and I'm the only one not getting chatted up, it feels shitty. 
It's like I'm really critical of his appearance-driven world of dating people, but I still can't help but feel hurt by my apparent rejection by it. Do you have any suggestions to help me fight my internal fat phobia in the context of dating and male attention? I really struggle with reconciling my feminist critiques of dating culture when I also feel intense loneliness and desire for partnership. Thanks in advance for any insight. So thanks, Lily, for that great question. It's such a good one. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, first of all, I mean, I want to say right up front that I've never lived or dated in a larger body, but I have dated online and I have lots of feminist critiques of my own for my own experience. And I also have some perspective as a vocal opponent of diet culture and an intuitive eating coach who works with a lot of plus size folks. And I also have some great resources to point you toward as well. So just want to sort of highlight that that's the perspective I'm coming from for anyone who's listening, who's new to the pod. But the biggest thing I want to say is that you're totally right. The appearance-based nature of modern dating, especially online dating, is absolute bullshit. It very much upholds a lot of patriarchal standards and replicates systems of oppression that exist out in the world. And it's just the worst. And, you know, it keeps a lot of people from getting to know folks that they'd be a great match with otherwise because the appearance-focused nature just kind of keeps you like swiping past or scrolling past. And this system also disproportionately affects women and femmes, like you said, especially folks of high weight, women and femmes of higher weights. And it can also harm non-binary folks and trans men and gay cis men and even straight cis men who don't fit into the box of masculinity that our culture puts men into, you know? So, like, basically everyone who doesn't match up with this one ridiculously narrow idea of what bodies are quote-unquote supposed to look like And that also includes people who are disabled and older and neurodivergent and like any other identity you can think of really that falls outside of the supposed ideal in our culture. So in short, you're not alone in being frustrated by online dating from a cultural perspective. There are countless others out there who are feeling the same way. And it's not just you. Like, it's not just because there's something wrong with you, which is, I know, kind of what our minds always go to when we're feeling rejected. A lot of people have this experience. I would venture to say most people have difficult experiences with dating in this culture, and it just really sucks. And I myself had some really bad experiences on the dating apps I'll share, even with the various forms of body privilege that I hold. And I also got very caught up in hating my appearance whenever someone would ignore me or stop responding to my messages on those platforms. And, you know, that was also at the end of my recovery when I was pretty much done with the disordered eating and overexercise behaviors, but still had a lot of internalized body shame to work through. And in retrospect, I can really see now how the online dating world really pushed on those issues in a way that it might not as much now, although, you know, that's not going to happen anyway because I'm happily married, so not going on, on any of the apps anytime, knock on wood, ever again. But online dating doesn't have to bring up as much of that stuff, I think, if you're in a place of more stability with your own body image. And I think some of the folks I know who are in a more body accepting place when they go into the dating world, including people in much larger bodies, can have somewhat better experiences, although God knows the harassment is rampant no matter what, right? 
but just not turning it in on yourself, you know, turning that anger in on yourself. I think that happens a lot when we're really still kind of in it with body image stuff. So one thing that I think could be helpful here and that's really helpful for dating, no matter what issue you're talking about, is continuing to do your own work to feel good about yourself on your own and to shore up those parts of yourself that you don't feel totally confident in that you've internalized stigma from the outside you know in this case it's body size stigma but any aspect of your identity that you don't feel confident or good about I think it's helpful to just continue doing your own work to feel better about yourself which you know helps set you up to be in a partnership that is fulfilling to you you know it helps give you a better radar for potential partners who are going to be good people and treat you well you know the way you deserve to be treated because you really do and so Lily, who asked the question, in your case, I think that might mean doing more of your own work, continuing to do your own work to feel okay with your appearance, no matter what anyone else's responses to you are. And Sonia Renee Taylor, who's been a guest on the podcast in the past and who runs the website and online platform called The Body Is Not An Apology and has a book by that name, posted something about this on social media recently that I really loved. It was actually a repost from someone named Dr. Thema, who said, work on yourself to the point that you stop feeling drawn to people who have not worked on themselves, right? Work on yourself to the point where you stop feeling drawn to people who have not worked on themselves. I think that's so powerful. And it's a really great piece of advice, I think, for anyone who finds themselves being drawn to people who are really appearance-focused or fat-phobic or rejecting or just emotionally unavailable in all kinds of other ways. And I definitely had that as my MO, being drawn to emotionally unavailable people before I took some time off from the dating scene and just learned how to be okay with myself. And so, you know, I don't think that you have to love yourself completely before someone else can love you. I think that's kind of bullshit too. Like that's just another barrier that society throws in our way. You can certainly still be working on loving yourself while you meet someone who can help with that project, you know, someone who loves you unconditionally and can help you help mirror the goodness in you. But I think that when we're looking for that person and we're not doing our own work or we're not in a place of at least trying to feel better about ourselves actively and actively seeking out people who make us feel good and, and support us in that project of feeling better about ourselves, I think we can unintentionally be attracted to or attract people who are going to treat us badly. And I know that was the case for me when I didn't feel good about myself. I let myself kind of get into situations that were really bad for me, that were really emotionally abusive and just emotionally unfulfilling as well. And so taking the time for yourself to feel good enough about yourself and deserving enough in your body and in your whole personhood, deserving of the kind of love that you really want is going to be helpful in setting you up so that the right person, when you actually see the right person in your life, you're not going to just pass them by and be like, oh, this person's boring. You know, you'll actually be open to receiving that kind of attention and ultimately that kind of love that that person can give you. So Lily, I'm not necessarily saying that you need to take time off dating per se, although it might be something to consider if you feel like it's just not working for you right now, because again, taking some time to shore up your own self-worth can be really helpful for finding the right person. But of course, the human need for companionship is also so real and so valid. But you just want to make sure that you find the right person who makes you feel good about yourself and is a positive force in your life, as opposed to someone who drags you down, someone who scars you or traumatizes you. Because then you're just lonely again, right? Then you're just feeling bad about yourself again. Only now you're being made lonely or made to feel bad about yourself by a relationship. And that is ultimately more painful than being lonely on your own 
alone because you haven't you haven't found a relationship, you know? So it sounds like maybe right now it could be helpful to consider taking some time off dating, just see how that feels to you, or at least just work on identifying what you're still working on in your body acceptance and what you really want in a partner at a deeper level beyond just, you know, the appearance stuff. And I'll say that that list of what you want in a partner must include that he's accepting of and attracted to you as a whole human being, including the size and shape of your body, because that's really what you deserve. And that's what we all deserve if we're looking for romantic partners. We all deserve a partner who's going to accept and be attracted to and be fulfilled by us as a whole human being, not just for our appearance or not just for one aspect of our personality. So in a way, Lily, those guys that are ignoring you on the dating sites or at the bars are just showing you right up front that they're not the right partners for you. And that's good information to have because then you aren't wasting your time with anyone who's not going to give you the awesome relationship that you deserve. And I know it's still painful not to feel like anyone is recognizing you for the catch that you are and responding to you. But truly, each one of those people who doesn't message you back or doesn't talk to you in a bar is bullet dodged. Because when you meet the right person who's actually emotionally available for you and right for you, you You won't have to clamor for their attention. You won't feel ignored by them. You'll feel like they're actually present and responsive to you. And it's really wonderful. And that is available to everyone, no matter the size of their body, no matter what they look like, no matter how they match up or don't match up with society's supposed ideals. We all deserve that kind of partnership and we can all find it. So now I want to give you some resources for helping kind of work on this stuff. The first one I really love is called The Curvy Cupid, which is a website run by a plus-size dating coach named Krista Niles. And there's a free email course and an in-depth coaching program as well. So you can find that at curvycupidcourse.com. And we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode too. So she talks about how statistics show that 20% of the pool of single men who date women are open to and interested in dating plus-size women. And it obviously should be more. And I'm hoping that the work I do and all my colleagues in the anti-diet field are doing can help push that number closer to 100%. But still, 20% is probably a bigger percentage than it might seem from your experiences. You definitely have to do a lot of weeding and filtering to find that awesome 20%, but they are absolutely out there. And it's a matter of adjusting the way you search. So as far as dating apps go, Krista Niles recommends OkCupid because she says you can make their algorithm really work for you by going through and answering all the questions about body size and marking those questions as the most important so that you automatically won't match as high or match at all potentially with people who answered those questions in fat phobic ways. And you can also manually search people's answers for those questions and block anyone who answers them in fat phobic ways. So I'll link to a blog post about that, about making OkCupid work for you that Krista wrote. I'll link to that in the show notes because she gives a great overview of exactly how to make it work when you're a plus size woman on that site. And there are also apps like Bumble, which caters to women and was actually formed specifically to cut down on sexual harassment. It was founded by someone who used to work at Tinder, a woman who used to work at Tinder and sued them for sexual harassment while she was employed there because there was a rampant culture of sexual harassment at the company and then left and started her own app, which is pretty awesome. So that is maybe a little more friendly of an app for folks, like for folks who identify as women. Also, there's something called Woo Plus, W-O-O Plus, P-L-U-S, which caters to larger bodied women and men, actually. it's They say big, beautiful women and big, handsome men and the people who admire them. So that one definitely sounds a little gender binary and 
potentially could be a little fetishizing, but I have seen some plus size folks recommend it. I saw one report from a plus size woman who tried it and said it was fairly a fairly pleasant experience as online dating goes and that she didn't feel fetishized. So I'll link to that article in the show notes for this episode as well. And Krista Niles of Curvy Cupid also mentions Woo Plus as a possible option. So it might be worth trying just different dating apps and seeing which makes the most sense to you, which feels like the most friendly environment in your area. Because, of course, there's geographic differences in the dating pool on different apps. So just trying different ones and seeing how you can make them work for you. And then finally, I would also recommend checking out episode 153 of my podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode as well. Sophia Carter-Khan, whom I just mentioned, my friend at She's All Fat podcast, talked to me in that episode about how she met her long-term boyfriend online. And we talked about dating while plus size. And so check that out for some more insight and solidarity. You can actually find it if you just go to christyharrison.com slash 153 or just search for episode 153 wherever you get your podcast. But we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So I hope that helps give you some food for thought and some resources. And above all, just know that you're not alone in having dating in your 20s be a sucky experience. It really sucks for a lot of folks. And you deserve better and you will find better. It'll just take some more weeding out of the wrong people and some time and some patience. But I have faith that you can make it happen. If you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it much more quickly than I can do here, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. When you sign up, not only do you get a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, but you also get an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you can ask me your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already so you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. You'll also get access to our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team as well as hundreds of other great folks who are with you on this intuitive eating path. A participant named Samantha Brown recently shared this on her public Facebook page in a post about resources to learn more about body positivity. She said, a word on books about intuitive eating. I don't recommend them because intuitive eating has morphed too much into the realm of the wellness diet. I do practice intuitive eating and it has changed and healed my life, but I did it through Christy Harrison's Intuitive Eating Fundamentals online course. All of my other recommendations are free with internet access or library membership, and this is the one paid program I recommend because it is that good. And you get lifetime access to her ever-evolving materials. So I love getting feedback like that about the course, and it really is ever-evolving because not only do I add to it every month with the Q&A podcast, but I'm also getting ready to do an update to the materials in the spring based on the almost three years of experience I've had teaching this course. So now is a great time to join because you'll get all the content that people are loving now already, plus free access to the additional material as soon as it's released. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and break free from diet culture once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Nurex. Imagine if you could chat with doctors anytime from your phone, get prescribed online, and get birth control delivered straight to your door every month with automatic refills. Enter Nurex, the game-changing company that's here to make getting birth control easier. Nurex offers end-to-end care without ever having to leave your home. It means paying for fewer doctor visits, skipping pharmacy lines, and no more forgetting to pick up your refill every month. Plus, if you don't have insurance, it's the most affordable option out there. 
And if you do have insurance, it could be completely free. Just go to their website or their app to answer a few health questions from their certified doctors. They carry over 50 brands of birth control so you can choose your go-to or their medical team will help you find the best option for you. It's all safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant. Just go to nurx.com slash foodpsych for a $20 credit and get birth control at your doorstep in less than a week. That's nurx.com slash foodpsych. This episode is also brought to you by Blinkist. In this day and age, it can be hard to find time to sit down and actually read a book, but thankfully there's Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help to business and health to history books. I like Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I feel like I can get more informed on the topics I care about, but don't have time to keep up with. They have tons of books I've been meaning to read and I'm so excited to learn from, including Becoming by Michelle Obama, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, and Good and Mad by Rebecca Traister. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash foodpsych to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash foodpsych, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash foodpsych. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Virgie Tovar. So Virgie, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you again. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being here on your third appearance now in the podcast. And you were last with us in April of 2017. So catch us up on everything you've been up to since then. Wow. So a bajillion things. <laughs> in that time, I did a lot of speaking engagements, a lot of writing. I wrote a book and yes. uh, it's called you have the right to remain fat. And it came out in August of 2018. And I started writing for Forbes online. They have a vertical called Forbes Women. And so I've been doing a number of things, but my primary focus has actually been on this series called hashtag XL Boss Lady, where I interview plus size women at the executive level of whatever their industry happens to be and asking them about lessons they've learned and what they believe makes a good boss and, you know, how fat phobia has affected their career trajectory. And it's been so powerful. So I've been really transformed by getting to interview people. And I think for me, it's been a fun divergence from my usual work, which is very memoir focused and very focused on kind of my personal experience navigating the world. And so it's been great to turn the lens outward and really hear wisdom from other women. But I think the the last year has really been focused on, had been really focused on the book and doing a lot of interviews around the book, really editing it and tightening it. And then it coming out into the world and doing a book tour and going all over the country to talk about these ideas. And then, you know, it came out in multiple different languages and Spanish and Portuguese as well as English. And it came out in the UK and made quite a splash there. And I did a lot of high profile pieces there. And so it was just kind of extraordinary getting to see how people were reacting to it globally. And that was really new for me. That is so exciting. That's yeah, it must be it must be so different to be traveling around to different places and see what 
the reaction is and sort of like the nuances of diet culture that might exist in other places that don't exist here, vice versa? Yes, exactly. I love your book so much. I'm so excited to dive in and talk all about it. But at first, I'm just curious how it came about. How did you get the idea to do this particular book? When did you start writing it? How did it all come together? Yes. I mean, in some ways, this book is the documentation of ideas that have been in the think tank in my own personal incubator for almost a decade and have just been percolating and growing and changing and are ideas that I've been offering through my writing and through lectures over that time. And so I really wanted to document the real kind of core tenants, ideas, understandings, realizations, and stories that truly impacted my journey and that I found really impacted other people's understanding of the history and the depth and the true reality of what diet culture is and how it's kind of this, how in a lot of ways our understanding of diet culture actually needs to deepen and widen for us to truly understand the scope of how it can take over someone's life so easily. And I kind of, you know, I did the book with the feminist press. So there's a really real attention paid to sexism and the gender bent nature of, of diet culture and the way in which it really does map onto women's gender social education in this culture and in Western cultures generally. And I think even beyond that, So I really took a hard line on speaking to women directly in this book. And I say that in the introduction because I am very invested in women living the lives that we deserve to live and truly thriving. And I really see diet culture as just an enormous barrier to human rights and the right to thrive that I believe we all have and that women, I believe in particular, have been systematically denied. And so I went into the book with kind of one goal in mind, which was to tell the truth as well as I could tell it and to tell the truth unflinchingly without fear of offending anyone, without fear of going into maybe a dark corner that maybe some people aren't ready to really explore. And to just tell the the story of diet culture insofar as I could with like, you know, the near decade experience I have both researching it, right, in like an academic setting and also living it in my own life and then also working with hundreds of other clients, most of them women, who have some version of this story. And the book is really the documentation of this entire process. And, And I feel like the timing of the book is important in a couple of ways. The first was we're currently in a cultural moment where fat phobia is going from overt to covert. Mm -hmm. And actually we can see it. I'm witnessing it happening actually in particular right now in the January, the moment that I'm doing this interview right now, the new year's marketing frenzy has changed substantively. The copywriting is very different. Like I just was at the mall yesterday and walked by a GNC I saw an image of a woman and and the script over her was no matter what size your perfect jeans are, make that your goal for this year or something Ooh. like that. It was essentially kind of this weight neutral, still New Year's aspirational kind of it had that vibe, but there was no it was really it was trying to kind of reach in this strange way while still clearly being really focused on the idea that 
you know, you need to be conscious of your size and that you should probably be aspiring to like the perfect pair of jeans. It did it in, the, in this way that I'd never seen a company like GNC would have, would have ever done it before this year, right? Would have ever done it before this cultural moment. Yeah, like co-opting, co-opting the ideas of health at every size or size acceptance or fat acceptance, but not going that far, not being that radical, just doing it in this like watered down way that's like, don't worry, you're still dieting. This is still about perfecting your body. It's just whatever size you want that to be. <laughs> like, oh, so insidious. Yeah. So it's this really interesting marriage. And it's clear to me, right, like having spoken to people who are in marketing full time and are kind of in the machine and don't really see any problems with it, it's clear that they're kind of trying to grapple with what they consider to be a trend. They're like, oh, weight neutrality or this body positivity thing is a trend right now. They don't see it as like a civil rights movement. They just sort of see it as like a thing that's happening. These hashtags are trending and therefore we need to meet our market in order to maintain our bottom line. And that's the way that companies are thinking, right? And so I kind of could see the earnest effort of like the boardroom and the people who are doing marketing for GNC and they're like, this is it's like still aspirational but it's like a little bit weight neutral I don't know so but I think what I'm saying these are like the breadcrumbs or the evidence of this shift that has been happening for a number of years and we're really beginning to see it on this grand scale and the significance this has on language and culture is that fat phobia as an idea isn't going anywhere, I don't think, for a long time. However, the culture and various major companies have picked up on the fact that there's a large market of like plus size people who are demanding these changes and how bodies are being spoken about. So what's happening is there's something that happens politically, actually, whenever any marginalized group has a civil rights moment or like a movement is that a lot of times the core ideology that created the injustice doesn't go anywhere. It just kind of goes underground, right? It goes from something that is explicit right on the surface to something that's just kind of living a little bit in like actions and behaviors. And it just kind of starts to become dissipated and it gets a little bit harder to see. And it's so important to have the language to articulate what is happening in actuality and how these systems, like what, what's at the core of them, what the history of them are. And so this book, I think my book really comes at a moment when we're going from overt to covert. And I wanted to document the language that is so necessary as this is happening in real time. And I think the second significance about timing is that I really wanted, I mean, I, like, right, like the book came out I wrote the book before the Trump election. I wrote the book before Me Too. In the book, and you can kind of see it when, you, when you're reading it, I'm really trying to make a case for the fact that sexism really exists still clear from the text that I'm sort of having this like almost like, please listen, I'm sure that sexism so real. I know you think that we're post-sexism. I know everyone says that everybody's invested in women and the pay gap is going away or it's imaginary or whatever, but it's not. And we need to like pay attention. And so it's like, it's fascinating to kind of, then the book is published. All of life has changed sort of. Right. And like the Trump election, me too, become the body of evidence for this thing I'm arguing for in the book that really we as a culture, I mean, I certainly didn't, but like 
I would say in mass, we as a culture believed that we were kind of done, that sexism was not a thing anymore, that women had made enormous strides legislatively and socially and economically and career-wise, and that anybody who was still talking about sexism was being a little bit of a poopy stick in the mud, right? <laughs> and I think like, what what ended up happening was I was sort of really talking about how diet culture and sexism are like milk and cookies. And I really wanted to to make that connection clear. And I and I really went in and talked about what inferiority, internalized inferiority, the belief that women are inferior, what it looks like in our culture. And I think it's fascinating, right? Because in the same way that I'm telling you about how fat phobia is going from overt to covert, sexism, the gender conversation, underwent a similar transformation many decades ago. And now we're at a phase, right? Like before the Trump and Me Too, before that moment happened, we were at a stage where we were denying that sexism was real and still a very big part of women's lives. And and then we sort of come to the moment of reckoning and we're like, oh, wow, women are getting sexually assaulted left and right. Women can't even like get a job without expecting, you know, some kind of horrible thing happening to them. That we live in a country where people vote into office someone who has committed assault. And so, right, like, I think there was just this kind of this way in which the the veil was pulled back or like the rug was pulled back and we saw the truth. And so I, I sort of think like, in that way, I hope that the book can be a lesson about those things. Those two facts can sort of speak to one another. I think that's so powerful. And that's really such a project that I'm on board with and trying to work out in my book too, like to trace how diet culture has become sneaky and underground and the overt manifestations of it aren't cool anymore. And so they're starting to go away. And like with sexism too, that's such a great point that we have been sold this lie really that sexism has disappeared. And I know you talk about this in the book too, of before you sort of had your feminist awakening, right? Not seeing the value of feminism because you didn't believe that it still existed or you didn't know what it looked like. And I so identify with that. I remember being, you know, 13, 14 years old and my mom, who's like, a Berkeley 60s feminist was like, you know, Christy, some of the stuff that you're talking about is really sexist or like these boys or whatever, you know, having some opinion about something. And I was like, what do you know, mom? Like, this isn't, you know, right. you're you're from an old, like you're a dinosaur, basically. Like this is, sexism is gone, you know? And lo and behold, she was totally right. And 15, 20 years later, I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, I see now. Yeah. And I think that the unfortunate thing is the more covert, the more underground it goes, the more tools it requires to uncover it, the more confidence you have to have in order to assert it. And all these kinds of layers in which it gets more and more difficult to sort of call it out and to really speak the truth without being accused of sort of being weird or archaic or, you know, not with the times or being paranoid or, you know, being a professional victim or whatever. And I kind of talk about that in the book, right, about that sense that I don't think that without an academic education, in addition to a feminist education, in addition to a master's degree, I don't know that I would have been able to A, point out sexism, B, and, and do it, do so assertively, like really do so with confidence. And I think that, that that the fact that I had to unlock all of those levels in order to just be able to speak the truth, <laughs> it, I mean, really, really speaks volumes to 
the ways in which, um, like the mechanisms that go into sort of protecting and maintaining these deeply problematic systems and ideologies at any cost. Mm, that is such a great point. Because yeah, as you, you talk about that really beautifully in the book, that we shouldn't really need all this education and so many resources to recognize what oppression looks like. And yet we do because it has gone so under underground because that's how it is really able to sustain itself. And I think that's such a great point that it's, I think that's why books like yours need to exist and why I do this podcast and why I continue like, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm speaking in circles around. I mean, for me, it's like I, I definitely talk about feminism and misogyny, but also the food stuff, the sneaky ways that diet culture shows up in our lives that don't even, you know, now it's like wellness and it's posing as I call it the wellness diet where it's like posing as health and well-being, but it's actually about still these same systems of oppression. And I often feel like I'm just talking in circles around it, like I can't quite get in there and sort of really nail down what it is or that, you know, like, like you said too, like the tone that I'm using sometimes I'm just like, seriously, this matters. Like, listen, you know, and, and it, cause it feels like we have to shout so loud because it's so insidious. And I think so many people don't really see these manifestations as a problem, these manifestations of diet culture or misogyny or racism or, you know, whatever as an issue because it's just so coded. It's just so subtle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But like if you were, if you were an alien visiting from another planet and <laughs> someone explained to you what dieting was, they would be like, oh, so you live on a planet where women go to extraordinary, deeply unpleasurable lengths to become marriageable. Is that correct? Alien. I often encourage people. I'm like, Imagine this scenario from an alien's perspective. Try to explain these certain things to an alien and then and figure like what would they say to this? And I sort of feel like, you know, when you come in with those fresh eyes to the untrained, to the unacculturated, unassimilated eye, diet culture would look absolutely totally and without a doubt exactly like what it is which is that women are taught to be inf like they're inferior to men and have to do ridiculous unpleasant humiliating degrading dignity eroding things in order to have proximity to them and in order to be considered worthwhile objects in this culture oh my god that is such a great point this perspective of an alien I think is so useful because we get we all get so I mean, we're also steeped in it right it's like the David Foster Wallace thing and maybe he got it from somewhere else but the idea that like culture is the water that we swim in and yeah. we're fish we can't recognize water like because we're just swimming in it but if someone else is coming along out from the outside and is like oh there's fish in that water it's a really valuable perspective to be able to hold rather than just being in it and not being able to to see it or to tell. Yes, absolutely. And I think the idea that having a perspective of what would someone from another planet say about this, this relationship, this dynamic between men and women in our society or between people of all genders do, because obviously sexism affects trans folks as well. I think it's a really important thought experiment to do because I think when you're first coming out of diet culture, it's really hard to unlearn that all at once and it's hard to see it all at once and so just having little moments where you can be like oh yeah that's really weird like seeing that from some from a completely outsider's perspective actually helps 
make little inroads, take little steps toward really understanding it and lifting the veil when it's really hard to do that all at once. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to go back to what you were saying about misogyny and diet culture going together like milk and cookies. And you say in the book also fat phobia and diet culture go together like milk and cookies. They're inextricable from one another. Like you can't have diet culture without fat phobia. And so I'd love to dig into that a little bit, this idea that these things are so interrelated and interconnected and to sort of like define and tease out how they interconnect. Yeah. I mean, I write about in the book, I sort of define dieting as the practice of fat phobia. Like fat phobia is an ideology. It's a system that positions fat people as morally and physically and health, like inferior also, you know, on the lines of health as well. So it's like an ideology and a system and the practice side of that system ideology is dieting. So that's how we take an idea and we act on it. I kind of go in and say, and I I talk about in the book that the word dieting has, is increasingly going out of vogue. Um, I I just talked about how it's like this weight neutral, faux weight neutral language is entering, you know, mainstream marketing around New Year's resolutions, like even Weight Watchers is rebranding, right? And again, co-opting weight neutral language for a weight loss company, which is, I mean, I think what's wild is the absurdity is only going to get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. And then it's just going to be accepted as status quo. And it's going to be so confusing and unable to decode unless you again have some kind of incredible education either politically or academically um that everyone's just going to be gaslit even more than women already are right Uh, i'm like i mean it's just i'm already seeing like i mean even just on personal instagrams for example i sometimes end up kind of screen capping some of the captions that people who are like living in this interesting place where they're trying to do weight loss while also trying to do fat acceptance. And it's just kind of like the language is so muddled and I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to imagine, like they'll say something. I mean, I just, I can't, I I wish that I had something to share with you verbatim, but it's just kind of so circuitous and obscure theoretical and strange and it's contradictory and yet this person doesn't seem to see any dissonance in it and it sort of I mean I'm like I'm very fascinated because I do see this as like the future of how we're going to be talking about this issue moving forward like people who like how can you as a culture be using weight neutral language and still maintain weight loss as a major ideal and I think really what this gets into, there's multiple, like there's so many layers here, right? Like I think about the ways in which weight loss and having a thin body are cornerstone principles to being in the United States, to being someone who's in the West even. These things are built into the fabric of U.S. history specifically like the work ethic, this belief that through the control of our more human slash animal desires and functions that we can become redeemed and therefore, you know, take up our place as the rightful leaders of the world. These things are into the history of what it means to be an American. I sort of, I talk about this in the book where it's, it's like there's this real idea 
the idea of diet culture is quite old, right? Like I sort of, I talk, I say that I believe, I think there's like a number of different possible starting points for diet culture. The one that I feel is most compelling is the movement called the dietary reform movement that occurred in the 1800s. And I talk about figures, Sylvester Graham, who invented the Graham cracker and who was a reverend and John Harvey Kellogg, who, along with his brother, co-invented the Kellogg's cornflakes and also had a number of sanatoriums. They were very focused on sort of what we would now call fad diets. They had a lot of strange behaviors that they thought were health promoting. Like abstinence and like, yes, oh, so much weird stuff. Yeah. And like circumcision as a way to end masturbation practices. And all these kinds of things. And so, but like with the dietary reform movement that was really started and led by Sylvester Graham, who was a really virulent anti-masturbation advocate, what his movement really advocated for was the idea that through food, you could control morality. And this kind of belief system exists to this day. The idea is the, the, the sort of the problem that the culture has with fat people and like, you know, just. I mean, this is just one simple statement. There's a lot of problems that the culture has with fat people and they're all bigoted. But like one of the beliefs about fat people is that fat people do not have discipline and represent kind of the like the uncontrolled, uncontained relationship to the more base part of humanity, which is that part of us that gets pleasure from food and from sex and these things that our culture is obsessed with controlling. And so the uncontrolled relationship to that more, quote unquote, base self, right? The idea that like acting on hunger or sexual desire makes you less human, makes you more animal-like is, I mean, it's colonialist and it's racist, but it's also just complete absurdity and like quackery. But that's truly at the core of like the Protestant work ethic, this idea that like through self-denial that we can become higher beings. And, And right, like this is also, by the way, at the core of white supremacist ideology, which at that time was required in order to literally psychologically and spiritually justify the genocide and eradication and enslavement of people of color. Yes. And I very much see the connections of like, I mean, this is what I'm talking about, like the unflinching pursuit of truth, where I'm like, I really do see the connections between the history of diet culture and the, essentially, the rationalization of things like slavery, because what you're really seeing is these men of influence who were deciding things like, if you can control what you eat, you can control your moral state. These were the same men. These were like literally some of the same men slash the descendants of the same men who were enslaving and who were colonizing other places. And so you, I, I do really see diet culture as kind of this like almost like rationalizing guilt response the beginnings of it, I should say, I see it as a bit as like as acting in that way as sort of serving a very interesting psychological purpose on a grand cultural scale. And so, right, like to kind of, I guess, to return to this, this question about like that phobia and that being sort of part of diet culture, I think at the end of the day, dieting behavior itself is, is really a way of, of signaling 
first of all, if you're a woman, and this is something that a sociologist named Sander Gilman points out, that if you're a woman, dieting is a way that you show the culture that you understand your role in society and are willing to undertake it. And I think like if you're a person of color or an immigrant and I, you know, as somebody who grew up, I was raised by immigrants and I'm a person of color. I certainly now realize that dieting and and attempting to be thin was a way of assimilating into one, being a good American and two, being a good person of color um, because these standards of weight superiority, these standards of body superiority are based on white men. These entire concepts of like who is healthy, who is who is, you know, well, they're based on cisgender white men. And so <laughs> Yep, who were at the time, especially like in the eighteen hundreds and still to this day, sort of seen, but explicitly in the 1800s, seen as the evolutionary top of the top, like the top of the evolutionary food chain was a white Northern European male, cisgender male. So, and that ideology still exists to this day, even though it's not as explicit in most corners of our society, but it, it has totally trickled down in this idea of like what health is quote unquote supposed to look like. Yes, absolutely. Dieting and diet culture as we know it simply would not make any sense if we accepted the fact that people come in all different sizes, that if people have negative attitudes based on someone because of their size, it is their responsibility to resolve their bigotry, not another person's job to accommodate their bigotry. I mean, like there are just so many things that would shift if we actually saw fat phobia for what it is, which is a form of very harmful bigotry. But like, I wanted to say one last sort of thing on the, on the history piece. And this is something I'm kind of just beginning to research, but a more contemporary example of this like interesting historical reverberation around fat phobia, diet culture, etc., and the manipulation of movement AKA exercise is like the national fitness test, which I think everyone, I I certainly had to take it. I think most of the people listening to this had to do it. And that kind of came out of the Reagan based, the Reagan era fear that we were going to need to be galvanized like a national army in order to fight communism. Uh Um, And kind of see, right? Like this is the eighties we're talking about. This is not like, 1749 and men were wearing like you know weird things right like a onesie it's not that yeah totally we're talking about 1989 and uh it wasn't that long ago and like literally and and if you kind of take that basic fact of like okay right a lot of these behaviors and attitudes truly do come from nationalism come from and I think when you if you are exploring what nationalism means in the US it's deeply connected to whiteness and the protection of like a white nation the protection of like and this idea that and I think this goes back to that like that protestant kind of religious aspect of the, the basis of our culture and Christianity in particular right this idea that like America is blessed by God that our job is to keep our bodies pure and ready to protect that gift. And that, that's kind of really at the core of, of American ideology. And I think it's, it, it might be like shocking for people to hear these kinds of like really intense ways in which I see diet culture as connected to like very old things that are connected to the, the basis of, of an entire nation. But I don't think it's that far afield, right? You sort of think about 
systems that are required to maintain some of the most precious ideas upon which a nation is built, you look at the behaviors of that nation and you find right, it becomes a breadcrumb trail to those ideas and you just have to follow it. Yes. And I loved what you talked about in the book, too, with like bootstrapping as another foundation of both American culture and diet culture, right? This idea that we have to work our asses off and that you only have yourself to blame if you quote unquote fail rather than looking at systemic injustice, which I feel like is in this podcast, I I talk a lot about the systems of injustice and how diet culture and white supremacy and fat phobia create this system where people are forced to shrink themselves and that like it's really not your fault that you got co-opted into that or got sucked into that and it's really not your fault that you quote unquote didn't succeed either because the system is really designed to fail the system failed you or dieting failed you diet culture failed you you did not fail dieting but inevitably whenever I have discussions about that whenever I'm sort of like it's not your fault here are these things that are working against you There's always someone who writes me an angry email or an angry comment and is like, you know, you're painting people as victims, right? And that's something that you touched on a little bit, too, about, like, this idea of professional victimhood. It's like people who are very invested in in the status quo and how American culture and Western culture sees things and especially this idea that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you have no one else to blame but yourself if you don't succeed. People who are really invested in the idea I don't think can square often this idea that, no, it actually is not your fault. And there actually are systems working against you, even like if it's someone with a lot of body privilege and a lot of cultural, ethnic privilege, whatever, white privilege, but they still are maybe female, cisgender female. I've had a couple of people be like, you're painting women as victims. And how is that empowering? How is that feminist? You know, and it's like, oh, it's just it's so entrenched, right? This idea, this sort of American ideals, these values that we all grow up in are so entrenched that people can't see past that they're stuck in sort of pointing fingers that like, no, you're, you're creating victims. You're making people out to be victims instead of seeing that the whole system is fucked, that the whole, the whole, the very idea of bootstrapping, the very idea of individualism is a huge problem and is causing a lot of people pain, including often the people who are, railing against anyone calling out the system in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, right, like an honest look at systemic injustice is irreconcilable with the American ideal of bootstrapping. This idea that anybody from anywhere can pick themselves up by the bootstraps and, you know, become anything they want, right? And we certainly have thousands of examples of people who are capable of doing that. I think the problem is that, you know, those stories really are, I mean, I I feel like it's so funny because the bootstrapping, the same disclaimer that goes on all weight loss products also goes to similar, like results vary. These results, not likely. I think that should be like the fine print on bootstrapping, right? Um, Oh, that's so good. I love that. Yeah. Results not typical. Like this is not... This is not what yes. happens for everybody. Like the one in a million person who did that thing that is so almost like superhuman <laughs> and say that everybody else can do it too, right? It just isn't, it just isn't like a fair, it isn't a fair standard. And the truth is, right, like we don't all have a level playing field. We don't all start from the same place. Um, we don't all have the same advantages. Any adult who has sort of, in my opinion, 
has the faculties of, of the ability to see, the ability to, you know, actually look at the truth can tell you this. This is, I think what's so sad is we're at a point in our culture where, um, I mean, you know, right now is interesting. I think it is a moment of, of real truth telling and looking at the truth. And I think that that's really important. But right for the most part, we live in a culture that is highly focused on avoidance. It's funny, right? Because the the rap of our like the our culture is kind of built on this idea that we're logical, we're enlightened, we're reasonable, and we're empirically driven. We only believe it if there's 14 studies that you can cite. I think like our culture, you know, we really believe ourselves to be these this kind of like empirical, scientific, superior, highly reasoning people. And I think that at the end of the day, however, we actually, you know, cherry pick information just like every other human. We research things that confirm our beliefs rather than with true with the true spirit of scientific inquiry. Like there's a number of things, right? And I, but I think like with people who are so reactive to this possibility that like injustice exists and that the playing field is level, I think those people are in deep denial of, like, cannot handle, like, some part of of their worldview cannot handle the truth of this. I don't know. I mean, it, it's fascinating to me because I think that there is this real preoccupation with silencing uh, people who want to have nuanced complex conversations that center social justice. Um, I think that is very threatening to this culture. And I mean, I, I often think when we're, when I'm talking about, you know, this topic of like denial, right? Like the person who kind of accuses one of being a professional victim or accuses you of, of creating victim status. I think a lot about the words of James Baldwin, who was um, a writer and a playwright and an intellectual and he talks about one of the cornerstones of American ethos is the claim to innocence, the idea that the average white American cannot stand to look at the actual truth of this country and to accept it as real. And it, it's fascinating, right? Because when you think about those words, his observation, it makes sense that someone would have this dogged denial of that history, of that truth. Like if you were able to look at, like read a book about history and really understand, oh, genocide happened. Oh, slavery happened. Oh, like women were denied the vote. Queer people and trans people were literally targeted by the police who are supposed to protect citizens. If you can actually look back at history and accept that as the truth of your nation, then you cannot deny, right, the reality of like what this nation is built upon. And yet most people, many, not most people, I would say many people of a very vociferous minority cannot look at that, cannot bear to look at that horrifying truth. And I think it takes a real act of maturity and courage to actually look at what is the truth, that what, like, what happened, what is happening, um, and to sort of say, like, I will not look away. This is the world around me. This is the history of the place where I live. You know what I mean? And I think, like, for me, unfortunately, it, it is unfortunate to me that, like, these are acts of courage, that these are acts yeah. of maturity like this is something that should just be expected of all humans and yet I think there are, I mean like obviously I feel like our president is like a metaphor of this perpetual child who will not look at the at the facts 
in, in their totality, like who just kind of doggedly refuses to do so. And I sort of see like miniature versions of that in sort of this archetype that you're talking about. Oh my God. Yes. All the time. That That's such a great point too, that, I mean, there is right, like 30% of the country or whatever it is now that still approves of him and that will go with him to the grave, basically go with him to the hell he's steering this country into or steering himself into like that minority is not seemingly capable of looking at the truth and the facts or caring about the facts right it's like this idea of like post-factualism that's really terrifying post-factualism no Um, I know it's like no there really are there are objective facts and also people I feel like there's now this sort of talk about like insidious sort of coded ways of erasing the fact that systems of oppression exist, I feel like I'm now seeing people being like, well, you know, in calling out diet culture or in calling out oppression of larger bodied people, like you're actually being very black and white and you're not using enough nuance. And like what you really need is is to be more nuanced and to understand that body positivity and weight loss can coexist and that people can embrace equality for all bodies and still think that some people need to lose weight or whatever. And it's like just this sort of twisting of the clear understanding of what this social justice movement is in service of, again, post-factualism, basically, like trying to make it out to be that we're the wrong ones for trying to give something any clarity and create a movement that has principles. <laughs> like, no, everybody, you know, it's it's this idea that like everybody should be able to call themselves body positive or whatever. And even if they're selling diet culture still. Yeah. I mean, I think of this and I talk a fair amount in the book about gaslighting. I see this as an example of gaslighting when you sort of step in and question someone's experience of reality. Um, when you step in and and question someone's claim to justice, right? Like, And I just sort of, I don't know, like, I think that again, unfortunately, I see this this increasing in frequency. And I think this is kind of, unfortunately, where things are headed in this conversation. What we're really seeing again is the tension. I I, I see this language as sort of an adaptive methodology for a culture that doesn't want to move away from fat phobia and progress and the movement away from fat phobia, which the, the civil rights movement around body size that fat people are leading, um, right? Like it's the tension between the future, like a better future, right? Where like people aren't destroying themselves in order to maintain a, a certain weight and the commitment of the culture to keep the status quo at any cost, by any means necessary. That gaslighting language is the is sort of like the, that maladaptive thing that emerges from those two forces. One's going in one direction, the other's going in another, you know? I sort of see that language is that evidence of that tension happening. And I, again, do see that double speak as crazy making. It literally is, it, it, it does 
cause one to doubt one's experience of the truth. It does cause one to doubt one's claim to what they, you know, it just, it's just so insidious all around. And I think what a lot of folks who are advocating for fat acceptance or body positivity and advocating for diet culture and dieting, I think what you see is, is that irreconcilable thing happening, the irreconcilable becoming reconciled in someone's mind. And I I truly believe that this is, I don't know, I, I see that also as deeply unsettling, of course, but at the end of the day, right, what we need, what we need to be focused on is the end of a value system, period, but like one based on body size and weight, what we need to do is recognize that any attitudes of superiority and for inferiority based on weight or body size are forms of bigotry that we have to believe, right? Like, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, we have to believe as people that we in our hearts want to end bigotry. And like, we have to actually kind of be committed to that. I think that's, what's really hard is like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sloganism and people kind of, they don't want to be left behind, right? Especially like in the age of social media, where you can kind of flag that you're like your allegiance to something that's trending, quote unquote, (laughs) or whatever, very quickly. And I think what's hard is, right, like, we're not talking about this kind of sloganism, which is very focused on the individual getting a social benefit from seeming alignment with something that is considered trendy, or that's something that's considered justice oriented. And, And like, right, that individualism, that individual focus is I think what leads to a lot of this kind of double speak gaslighting language. Like we have to recognize one, this is a movement. This is not an individual based. This is about justice. This isn't about an individual necessarily one person feeling okay about their choices. It's about ending an extraordinarily horrible and abusive system of injustice. And when we kind of open up the scope and we stop just seeing like, oh, you know what? Uh, I know that like, I want to be body positive, but I also want to experience the privileges and perhaps abdicate the really awful sides of, of like fat phobia. When we sort of stop at that level, and we just like the individual just stops there, that's where we see the double speak, the gaslighting, all this stuff, right? And then, but when we move when we move beyond that, we move beyond the single individual, the ego, and we start to ask on an ecosystem level, what is happening when we continually invest in the hierarchy of body size and weight and feel committed to ending those horrible things, which are like eating disorder, depression, isolation, any number of things. Um, we're committed to ending those things and seeing those as systematically wrong for all people. That's when it begins to like, that's when the justice really begins to make sense. And I, as I say in the book, I have this critique of body positivity and the transition from fat liberation to body positivity and how body positivity really eclipsed fat activism and fat liberation. I really talk about this, how I believe that fat activism, fat liberation had two major questions at its core. Number one, how can we develop tools to survive and love ourselves in a culture that teaches us to hate ourselves and who hates us? Number one. Number two, how do we create justice for all? How do we create an end of this for everyone? And I think that as as sort of body positivity eclipsed that liberation, 
that second, and I would argue more important question, completely disappeared. And it became movement, a movement, quote unquote, about the individual feeling better about their body and the conversation ending there. And when you end the conversation there, really, that's when you begin to see the double speak, the manipulation of language, the gaslighting. Yeah. So I'm just going to end there and say that. That's what I'm going to say. That. <laughs> that's a great point. Oh my gosh, totally. And I think that I want to say too, for anyone who's listening, who might be feeling personally attacked by this idea. It's not just an individual pursuit, right? This movement is about social justice and a and collective, a collective form of social justice, not just individuals feeling better about themselves, like you said, but also I don't blame anyone for falling into that double speak place because this shit is really hard, right? It's hard to unlearn bigotry. It's hard to unlearn diet culture's belief system. And so when you first, especially I think when people are first moving into this place of starting to accept their bodies, because I think almost always it starts with an individual desire to feel better about yourself. Like I think that's a lot of times what draws people into starting to do this work. And it's, it's about like personally overcoming an eating disorder or chronic dieting or, you know, disordered eating of any kind or body loathing or compulsive exercise and all these different things. And so I get that some people might be coming into it from that place. And that's totally understandable. Like that's very much, of course, we all want and deserve to feel okay in our bodies and to not be engaged in disordered eating and destructive dieting practices. But it can't end there. Yeah, it's sort of a good clue that you've stopped before you really, before you've gone all the way into this as a social justice movement. If you find yourself sort of twisting yourself into rhetorical pretzels to justify why you're selling some form of weight loss or engaging in some form of weight loss. And again, of course, like it's common and understandable to have the desire to lose weight while also working to liberate yourself from diet culture. Those things absolutely often coexist because we're just, you know, it's hard to unlearn everything all at once. But it's one thing to sort of know that that's an issue, that that's sort of a sticky thing that you're going to have to work through for yourself in order to get to the point where you're really fully liberated and can work for and stand for the full liberation of everyone and all bodies. But it's another thing to try to dig in your heels at that sticky point and say, no, this is how it is. Like, this is how it has to be. And I'm okay trying to lose weight while also being body positive. And you can't tell me any different. Like, that's where I think the real problem is. And that's where, you know, if anyone listening has sort of found themselves in that place, like, I think that's a good clue that it's time to dig deeper and do more work of unlearning these systems of oppression. Because Again, like if you're tying yourself into rhetorical pretzels trying to explain and justify your position, that's usually a sign of gaslighting. That's usually a sign like when your brain scrambles. You know, for me, I feel like I've gotten really good at recognizing I'm in the presence of gaslighting and it's sort of like a feeling. It really feels like my brain is just being twisted. And I think if you find yourself in that position, it's a good moment to just like take a step back and assess what it is you're really trying to do by arguing for the coexistence of body positivity and diet culture. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think we've spoken about this before and, and I mean, I, I think it's interesting, right? Like I, what you're talking about with that trajectory, how a lot of times our entree to a political movement is the allure of it 
is often relief, you Mm -hmm. know, whether it's intellectual relief of like, I mean, for me, a lot of intellectual relief has come from being involved in political movements because what a lot of times what I gain from them is, oh, wow, that feeling that I had inside of me that something was deeply and irrevocably wrong with me that has a name it's called this system of oppression, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and and like that intellectual relief of having words attached to a feeling is so powerful. And I think for me, I feel like one of the things that I hear over and over and over again from people around a lot of the work that I do around really decoding the history and some of the like sociological, anthropological nuance of diet culture, a lot of people give me feedback that they feel like a sense of relief that this, that this was a feeling that they, that they knew something wasn't right and they couldn't figure out what, and when, and when people can't figure out what they tend to blame themselves and that's what we're taught to do. Right. And, and very much like diet culture is an act of accepting blame. It's an act of sort of accepting the blame for fat phobia and saying, I will acquiesce and do anything in my power to maintain this system of abuse because I have accepted that it is my fault that I am the victim of this. That's victim blaming ideology, plain and simple. So it makes sense to me, right? Like I think for a lot of people, relief is the entree and relief is a very individual experience. And I think like once we get enough in my opinion, right? Like I'm a believer in like the way that we become accountable as humans and we become global citizens is that when we've accumulated enough resources in our own healing process, that it is kind of our human duty to begin to redistribute those resources. And that might just be compassion. That might just be, it might be any number of very small things that some of us do intuitively. Um, I think what's really hard is like you're talking about that kind of dogged refusal to engage with that accountability. I have a really big problem with that too. And like the kind of the, the unwillingness to sort of reconcile internally, oh, this is my choice. This is my ideology. And then becoming like the voice of someone who essentially is like trolling people who are trying to just feel one another and themselves um, and perhaps a collective. And I don't know, like, I mean, I, I kind of don't, I guess I don't entirely understand that way of thinking, but I certainly see it frequently enough to know that it's like, I don't know that it's out there. (laughs) Totally. And it's interesting, like, you know, you talked in the book and we sort of touched on it a second ago about like this idea of internalized inferiority. And I feel like the sort of position of being like the person who's digging in their heels and saying like, no, I can have body positivity and weight loss and no one can tell me otherwise or whatever. Being in that position, I almost feel like is sort of this weird intersection of like internalized inferiority and internalized privilege, like unexamined privilege that it's kind of funny because those are, they seem like opposite things, but I think maybe they're like two sides of the same coin that sort of show up in this way where a friend of mine and I were talking about this idea around politics and she was saying that she had read something or, or maybe this was just her idea that the women who voted for Trump, right, the people who were somehow not seeing how they were voting in their, not in their best interest, but like white women who voted for Trump have this proximity to privilege and power and have their own privilege and power from whiteness and the proximity to like male whiteness, they're they're close enough that, you know, it sort of feels like voting in their best interest to vote for someone who is actually oppressing them because it feels like they're 
close enough that, you know, they might as well support the white cis heteropatriarchy. And they feel that that's going to be actually in their best interest. And maybe in some cases it is. And I think it's the same maybe with diet culture where people who it's oftentimes people with a lot of privilege who end up in that sort of dogged space of being like, no, you can have body positivity and weight loss where they have some proximity to thin privilege maybe, or they have, you know, and they have white privilege and they have economic privilege and they have other forms of privilege that sort of make them not have to realize what other people are going through who don't have those forms of unearned privileges and can say, if I can do it, basically, if I can do dieting, then everybody else can. Again, this like bootstrapping thing. If I can do it, then then so can you. And like this is, you know, sort of universalizing their experience. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this, I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking, this is a form of of gentrification really. And it's funny because there's a chapter in the book where it's called early lessons from fat activism. And I considered calling that chapter the gentrification of the fat movement. And what's interesting, the gentrifying, there's a book called The Gentrification of the Mind written by Sarah Shulman. And I was very, I'm very influenced by this book. But she kind of talks about the difference between the person with a gentrifying compulsion and the person who doesn't have a gentrifying compulsion. And I'm going to use this metaphor, you know, she talks about cities. Obviously, this is where, you know, cities are where the the concept of gentrification really comes up frequently. But I think it has, I think it very much applies to political movements as well and what you're talking about. And she sort of says, let me start actually with the person who doesn't have that gentrifying impulse. So she talks about a city like San Francisco or New York, right? The person without the gentrifying impulse comes into the city with curiosity and humility. And, and, asks the question, how can I be changed by this place? And the person with a gentrifying impulse comes into a city and says, how can I change this place to accommodate me? And I think that there's this incredible way in which a certain number of individuals sort of descended upon the ideology and the space of fat liberation. And rather than saying, coming in with humility and curiosity, came in with this sort of more rapacious attitude. What can you do for me? How can you accommodate me? These are the things that I'm willing to sort of shift around. And these are the things I'm not willing to shift around. And you have to meet me there. And and sort of, I see that gentrifying impulse. And it it fascinates me in a lot of ways, because it's just not intuitively how I interact. Like when I came into the fat movement, I came in with kind of that wide eyed, that very pupil energy, that very sort of like I was ready to be transformed. I was ready to listen. I was ready to look to elders and leaders who had sort of been established in that space. And I was I was ready to sort of receive the knowledge that they had. And I went in with an incredible act of trust that felt very intuitive to me. You know, I was like, and I, I think it really was that kind of that, that spirit of inquiry and collectivity that I bring to all of my work. And I think many people bring that energy into spaces. Um, I've seen it, right? I've seen so many people bring that sort of like that, um, that pupil energy into the spaces that I'm working in or into spaces that I happen to be in like conferences or healing places. And I think it is the minority who kind of bring that gentrifying energy into it. But I do very much see that kind of like, this movement is here to serve me. This rhetoric is here to serve me. This this ideology, I will only accept this information insofar as it doesn't make me uncomfortable, insofar as it 
doesn't challenge me in any way. I mean, I obviously believe that, that, that that's an exploitative position to have. And I truly believe that people who, I believe in the recovering gentrifier, the recovering, you know, person with the exploitative impulse. I do believe there's redemption for those folks. And I, I think that it does kind of take, again, like that, that kind of humility in order to kind of recuperate that. And, and I think the other thing, right, that people often forget is collective liberation is sort of requires a big part of individual liberation, right? Like who wants to be like the most like spiritually, you know, expansive woke person on an island by themselves? Like that is that's not fun. Right? Like you want to be able to like enjoy your your freedom wine with your friends. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I often am like, don't forget that there have to be other people at the party. You're not just like fighting for the collective as some kind of act of like selfless magnanimity. You're actually fighting because these are the people you're going to be partying with when like everything, like, you know, when, like when we win, you know? Yes. Oh, so good. That is so true. And it really speaks to something that I've heard from so many listeners. Like I do a listener question at the beginning of every episode. And the number one category of question I get is like, how do I get through to the people around me? Like, how do I deal with the people around me who are stuck in diet culture? And so like, it really is, you know, this this idea of collective liberation, like for anyone listening who's sort of early on in their their individual awakening away from diet culture, their individual recovery from disordered eating and dieting, to get to the place where you're not having to constantly be triggered by everyone around you and deal with like fending off people's disordered comments about your body or about your food or whatever it is, that requires collective liberation. That requires working to make the world a safe place for people in all size bodies and also for people in all bodies of all different shades and shapes and all of the rest, right? Everybody. So it's not, like you said, it's not just this altruistic thing that you have to be like some super woke person to want to participate in. It actually does benefit you too, because like, again, this number one question on everybody's minds, usually when, when they come to this anti-diet space is how do I get other people to stop being stuck in diet culture? The way that you do that is to get on board with this collective liberation movement and to say like, maybe I don't even completely understand it yet that like, what is this all bodies are valuable idea? Or what is this idea that like, there's not a weight limit on body acceptance or something because maybe you still hold on to these internalized diet culture beliefs that like, yeah, it's okay up to a certain X number of pounds and then, you know, you can't be healthy. But maybe like put that on the back burner and try to listen and try to get on board with what this movement for collective liberation is saying because ultimately that train is going to take you where you want to go, you know, and hopefully along the way too, you'll start to accept like, oh yeah, there really is no size limit and all the rest. Yeah. And I mean, I think I want to like one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in 2018 that someone taught me at the very beginning of 2018 was always remember that your first thought was your socially trained thought and you get to choose your second thought. You can kind of just I mean, I find like if you're having if your first thought, if you're a lot of your first thoughts are socially trained thoughts, you can just kind of 
chuck those if they're you know what I mean like if they're they're like not nice and they're not promoting the kind of amazing beautiful wonderful vibrant world you want to create you can just sort of chuck it up to like you know what my brain is just remembering some weird trauma thing that happened like some traumatic social education I received and I'm just gonna let it go what idea do I want to choose and it's awake because it's like right like I think that's what's so powerful is they're a lot of people feel really afraid of that first thought and they really think that who they are at the core and that isn't right we have this beautiful i feel open right like the first thought is only the first thought there's thought number 2 3 4 5 5000 6000 those thoughts can be the ones that matter those can be the ones we act upon Oh, that's so beautiful. So well said. And I think that's a good intention to go into with for the new year too, like to go into the year with this intention of not just letting your socially conditioned thought be the place that you stop. Yes. Oh, I love it. I want to leave us some time just to make sure we get to talk about your amazing new project, Camp Thunder Thighs, which is so exciting. So tell us a little bit about what it is and just all of it, how you came up with this idea, what people get from it and when it's happening and all that good stuff. Yeah. So Camp Thunder Thighs is happening the final weekend of June, 2019. So June 28th through 30th. And it is in a national park, the Marin Headlands in Sausalito, California. It's right near the beach and we have like a fire pit and it's kind of, I mean, it's just this extraordinary historic space that's been converted into sleeping quarters. There's also like a central kitchen. And so it's essentially like three days in the beautiful redwood slash the Pacific Ocean, jiggling, talking about our feelings, working on boundaries, working on our relationships to our body. And I really, I thought I can't thunder thighs just came to my mind. It just felt so evocative, like little tiny shorts, like the reclamation of fat camp, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I actually commissioned this artist to make a logo and it's it's not public yet but um mm. it's like these beautiful glorious thighs with the fire and the woods in the back anyway i'm just very excited kind of the way i've i've sort of honed in on five practices that really i've found create massive substantive and meaningful change in our relationship to our body and i'm going to share those principles right now The five principles are community, a critical intersectional political education. Number three, uh, the practical tools for healing and resiliency. Number four, a non-judgmental space to recuperate our relationship to food. And the fifth thing is movement whose only purpose is pleasure and has no other outcome besides that. And so I really wanted to create a space where we could practice those five principles in a gorgeous environment. And so that's what Camp Thunder Thighs is. And if you're interested in registering or learning more about it, you can go to my website, virgitovar.com and click on Camp Thunder Thighs. Woo, it's so exciting. We're going to link to that in the show notes too, so people can find you and learn more about that and all your other work. And I really want to go. It sounds amazing. (laughs) I'm like, I'm from... California and the Marin headlands are freaking beautiful. So it's definitely sounds like an amazing environment to do this work. Agree. Yeah. There's also nightly s'mores bar. Ah! It's just wild. 
Oh it's my so god! Ready. Oh, that it's sounds so fun. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's like the dead of winter right now, and I'm just so over the cold. I feel like that's like June in the Marin Headlands. Such a perfect time to just like restore and enjoy the the sun and the beach. Oh my god. Agree. Well, thank you so much again for being back here for a third time and sharing your wisdom. And I love your book. I feel like everybody should get out there and get it because it's amazing. And it's so inspiring on dismantling diet culture and giving people the the fire to sort of get on board this social justice train. So yeah, everybody should go check it out. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always. Same. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Virgie Tovar for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical guidance to help you get started on the anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us up in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet messages and keep rising up in the health category. We've actually been in the top 20 to 50 health podcasts in the past few weeks, which is so amazing. And now I want to break into the top 10 to just beat out all those awful diety podcasts that are hanging out in those ranks right now and just give people an alternative. So help us do that by sharing this episode or the podcast in general with your friends and family on iTunes or Apple Podcasts especially. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 184. That's christyharrison.com slash 184. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by Blinkist. In this day and age, it can be hard to sit down and learn more. You might think you don't have time to read a book. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways, so you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Psych, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash food psych. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Mm -hmm.